when I was contemplating whether or not I should write a memoir, I kept thinking back and thinking back and thinking back. And then I realized, oh, you know, I met this guy who helped me in the lab and then won a Nobel Prize. And then I sat back and I said, oh, wait a second. I met another guy who helped me in my lab. He also won a Nobel Prize. Anyway, I go through this recall uh, recollection and there were seven of them. I, it's amazing that this happened. I know of nobody else where this has happened. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today we have a very special guest, my friend and client, Dr. Louis J. Inaro. Now, you might not have heard of Dr. Inaro, but I'm betting you've heard of a very important result of one of his Nobel Prize winning scientific discovery, and that is the drug Viagra. I'm going to take you back a little bit. Dr. Inyaro uh, is a native of Brooklyn, New York, and he studied chemistry and pharmacy at Columbia University uh, from 1958 to 1962. So he's been at this a while. Then he went on to earn his PhD in pharmacology at the University of Minnesota a few years later in 1966. And then he completed his postdoctoral fellowship in chemical pharmacology at the National Institutes of Health. Now, in the course of his career, of his research career, uh, Dr. Inyaro made the groundbreaking discovery that nitric oxide is something that our bodies produce in, with our vascular endothelial cells. So those are the cells that line our blood vessels. And the nitric oxide has an action that relaxes the smooth muscle, lowers blood pressure, improves blood flow, and prevents all sorts of catastrophes like stroke and heart attacks. It also is the mediator of erectile function. And this is how Dr. Nyaro's discovery inspired Pfizer to utilize the pharmacological knowledge that was provided in Dr. Nyaro's Nobel Prize winning discovery and go ahead and make Viagra. And I, the reason I can even describe this to you and um, use big words like endothelial <laughs> is that um, Dr. Nyaro has written a memoir at which I, for, for which I was his uh, book coach. And the memoir is called Dr. No. That's N-O, capital N-O, the discovery that led to a Nobel Prize and Viagra. And so N-O, obviously, for those of you who have any knowledge of chemistry, which for, of which I have very little, but I do know that N-O stands for nitric oxide. So it's a little double entendre there. Anyway, um, Dr. Nyaro has received many awards besides the uh, Nobel Prize. Um, he's also the founder of the Nitric Oxide Society and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Medicine, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society. But one thing that I really love about this man is that in addition to his scientific brilliance, he is also a delightful, delightful person to be around and a wonderful conversationalist. Uh, so I do hope that you will enjoy uh, hearing what Dr. Nyaro has to say to us today. So, Lou, welcome to the Author's Corner. Well, it's great to be here, Robin. It really is a great honor and a pleasure to do this with you. Well, it's it's certainly an honor and pleasure for me. And um, as you know, we've we've 
developed a, a many years long relationship now. And I always love talking to you. So <laughs> this will be no exception, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, your experience uh, conceiving and writing your memoir, Dr. No. Uh, as I know, it was a long journey for you that began actually many years before you and I met. So yes, maybe yes. tell our listeners a little bit about the genesis of the idea to write a memoir and, you know, what were some of your early steps? Of course, I'm happy to do that. First of all, I must say that up until about 10 years ago, I had no idea, no interest and no concept of writing a memoir. I mean, why would I want to write a memoir, my own autobiography? It's the I do that only when I prepare a CV, a curriculum vitae, you know, which I need to do if I need to get some money or <laughs> apply for this or apply for that. But I must say that I had quite a few friends and research colleagues for many years, and they learned all about my life, uh, about when I was growing up, what I did in, in college the kind of research I was doing. And I think at about 10 years ago or so, some of them were coming to me and saying, you know, you have an incredibly interesting and fascinating life. You, you ought to write a memoir. And I said, okay, well, where am I going to publish it? In the Journal of Biochemistry? I mean, what am I going to do? <laughs> I didn't know anything about this. And they said, no, 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 you, you should publish it so that the layperson can read it. You know, you can write a book and sell it on Amazon or whatever. And of course, I knew nothing about that. But I kept thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, I did have an exciting story. And more importantly, I came to the realization that my story could be of significant interest to others. That is, mm. young people who want to develop a career didn't know how, uh, to those scientists who are trying so hard to be successful, but they're struggling, and mm -hmm. so on. And um, I just thought that I could be helpful in that way. So then I made a decision to start writing uh, a memoir. And so I started. I didn't look up anything. I didn't know how to do anything. I just <laughs> started to write. And then I realized about six months later that this was not going to work <laughs> because I'm used to writing scientific articles. Right. Very scientific different. Yeah. jargon. You know, it's, it's, you're not telling a story. You need to present the facts and the scientific journals don't want you to tell a story. Mm -hmm. They just want to know ABC, one, two, three, what did you do? What were the conclusions? And don't make it exciting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, to make a long story short, with some recommendations, I found this uh, this lady, Robin Colucci, <laughs> <laughs> who became my writing coach. And I, I, I'll never forget when I, we talked about it, you mm -hmm. said you were interested. So I sent you something that I had done. And I don't remember the exact words, but you said something like, you know, it's very interesting, but we're going to have to rewrite it. Right. <laughs> Something like that. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, we did that. And, and it took yeah. a number of years, as, as you well know. But uh, well, it didn't take outset, 10 I, years. I, I'm thinking I think we wrote it in maybe just over a year when yes, we started together. About a year, a year and yeah. a half. Because yeah, I had thought there. about it for a long time yes. and I started yeah. to put things together. Uh, but then you were asking me lots of questions. And so I had to go back and. Yes. You know, one of the things I learned from writing this memoir, which I would love to share with our audience, yeah. is that I have convinced myself that I do not have dementia of any kind. No <laughs> Alzheimer's disease. It's incredible how when you give it, you, you give it time and you could really think back about all the details that happened mm -hmm. to you when you were a kid. Yeah. Just going back and going back. And I would remember these things. And as I wrote them out and typed them out, I could remember even more and I would write that out. So uh, I was very happy to see that at least um, 
mentally, I'm, I'm still functioning well. Yeah. And I mean, some of the details that you had about your childhood were really extraordinary. And I'm thinking in specifically about your, your mom and your dad. Yes, of course. Um, and who were both Italian immigrants, uh, mm -hmm. barely spoke English, and brought a lot of the mindset and traditions of Italy, where they came from. Yes, uh, sure. Including some uh, cooking methods, I believe, and as <laughs> yes, well as exactly. some disciplinary method. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about, um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the first thing was that, uh, you know, my parents, and I'd like to share this as well, because I think it's important. And since I have been, since I prepared this memoir, I've gone around to talk to young students in elementary school about my background. As you said, my parents were immigrants from Italy. They met in Brooklyn, New York. They mm -hmm. got married. I was born. They didn't speak English. My mom started to speak a little bit. My father took forever to speak English. So here I am. I start kindergarten and the first grade, and my English was terrible. The teachers warned my parents that unless I can communicate in English, I'm going to really struggle in elementary school which I did for the first two or three years. But then my mom got her act together. She took lessons. She learned to speak English. We were not allowed to speak Italian at home, mm. which which meant my father was quiet most of the time. Right. <laughs> my mom would speak English. And I did put it together, and I was able to learn the language and improve my grades dramatically by the time I entered the third and fourth uh, grades. Uh, and, and so what is the moral of that story? Well, the moral of that story is that your parents don't have to be professional. My dad was a carpenter and my mom did not work and they never went to school. So your mm -hmm. parents don't have to be professionals in order for their children to be uh, successful. In fact, they don't even have to learn to speak English. They don't even have to know English for you to be uh, successful. Yeah, And so that's yeah. important because there's so many kids out there who have this kind of a, a handicap because the parents are immigrants from whatever country, the English is poor. And so right away they feel they're never going to make it. The parents feel that their mm -hmm. children are never going to make it anywhere because they don't have the appropriate background. But that's that's not true. That That's not true. And I'm living proof of that. Yeah, yeah. And and you you worked very hard and you were naturally curious as well and and it almost seems like you were born interested in science. <laughs> yes, well, curiosity, you know, one of the post, most important elements in my life that I can attribute my success to is curiosity. I was curious about everything. I mean, the first thing I was curious about when I we're talking about five years old, six years old was. How does a clock work? Mm. A clock. <laughs> so uh, my father was a carpenter. I went down to the basement. I got his tools and I took apart his <laughs> clock. <laughs> I put all the parts down in order. I put, <laughs> I put all the parts together. I put the clock back together. And I see that there's three pieces i didn't know where they where they uh -oh. went there were three missing pieces <laughs> i flipped the lever on the clock and it worked oh wow interesting <laughs> i thought that was happening. why do we need these three decorative <laughs> <laughs> but my uh my curiosity led me to have great interest in a subject that none of my peers at that time eight nine ten years old we're interested in, and that was chemistry. Mm. I love chemistry, and I started off by making firecrackers, by modifying the firecrackers to rocket fuel, even <laughs> small bombs, which were quite destructive, I might say. <laughs> but what I did was I learned how to make gunpowder <laughs> at the age of 10 years old. I did that by going to the library to look up things, and I see the chemicals I need. My parents bought me a chemistry set and I enticed my older friends to go to the local pharmacy to buy me the chemicals that I needed. Everything worked out. 
Well, and I made I mean, these firecrackers. I mean, think about it. I mean, this is like things you would never be able to get in a pharmacy today. Today. No, no. Today, no. Because back then, now, I don't want to scare the audience, but we're talking about the late 1940s and early 1950s. That may be before your parents were born. But anyway, <laughs> in those days, in those days, pharmacists had to make everything. They mm -hmm. didn't order drugs from uh, a pharmaceutical company and then they pour it in a bottle, put a label on it and it's yours. No, 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 no. They made everything in the pharmacy. So they needed all the raw ingredients like sulfur and charcoal and saltpeter and this and that. Of course, those are all the things I needed to make gunpowder. Right. And so I was <laughs> able to buy that. If I try to do that today, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. And certainly chemistry sets are not going to contain those dangerous chemicals. No. And your chemistry set didn't, right? You didn't contain it, it most had, of them. It had uh, two things. It had oh. sulfur, ah. which today's chemistry sets don't have. Oh, I, yeah. Because things have changed. People mm -hmm. have learned to use sulfur. Yeah. And, 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 and potassium nitrate, for example, saltpeter to make gunpowder. Mm -hmm. So it's not in there. But charcoal powder, yes, that was in there. Sulfur. Yeah was in there, but some of the other ingredients were not. Right, right. And so tell tell our listeners about about your your first experiment um in the basement. And and oh, we, we no. won't we won't give away everything because no, it's just right. too much fun. We don't right. wanna there's a little spoiler alert here. We're gonna share some stories from the <laughs> memoir, but we're we're not gonna share the best ones, just so you no. know. You're no. gonna have to go buy Dr. No if you want the best one. <laughs> But let's, let's I promise us... you will enjoy that read for right, sure. Right, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your, your first experiment in the basement well, and how that the went. The first few experiments were just yeah. to see if I could make firecrackers and to see how, if they work, and they did. And then I was uh, unhappy with the crackling sound and the minor explosion, so I decided to make uh, a much larger firecracker. Instead of a half inch, I went for the two-inch variety. And I made it, I put a fuse into it, and then I decided, I asked myself, well, where am I gonna light this up? Well, I don't wanna do it outside, it'll make a lot of noise, the neighbors may hear. So I went into the basement. We had a basement where we stored things. My parents had dressers of drawers where they stored you know, winter clothes and so on and so forth. So I decided, I opened up one of those drawers and I, I lit the, the firecracker and I put it in the drawer and quickly closed the drawer and backed up. And I figured I would hear a, a muffling sound. It was a lot more than a muffling sound. <laughs> what happened was that the entire dresser of drawers blew up, scattered, <laughs> underwear everywhere <laughs> in the room, splinters of wood everywhere. Luckily, none of it hit me. So I was okay. And that's when I realized, oh, that last mixture of gunpowder I made is a good one. Right. It worked. <laughs> and so then I had to deal with my father, which was not too bad. And then I had to deal with my mother, which was terrible <laughs> in, in terms of the punishment I got for doing that. My, my father... He never punished me for any of the things I did because he saw that I was doing something he did not understand. Mm. He saw that I, I, I was educating myself and I was experimenting and he wanted me to go further. He didn't mm. want me to be a carpenter like him. Mm. He wanted me to go further and be somebody. So he wanted me to give every opportunity to have every opportunity to make things and so on. My mother, on the other hand, was worried that I was going to kill myself right. and the neighbors. Yeah. So yeah. she put the brakes on. Right. <laughs> so between the two of them, I was able to find a happy road. Right. A balance which, with not... achieve my goals. Yes. Yes. Uh, exploring your interests without killing anyone. There's just <laughs> a, a good balance, a good balance to have. But, but I never. I, you know, and all kidding aside, yes, I made firecrackers, rocket fuel, and so on. But the thing about that was that I got into the chemistry. And, and we're talking about 10, 11, 12 years old. I never 
lost interest in the chemistry. Mm -hmm. Even though, of course, I stopped making explosives after a while, the chemistry of it, the -hmm. fact that different molecules can react with one another um, to form new molecules and either cause explosions or fires or anything else is what interested me. And I've maintained that interest up until today. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting though, because you, you, you were working with um, small explosives. And like I said, uh, listeners just get the book. Um, Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it wound up with a big explosive. Yeah. Which yeah. We, we won't oh, talk we, about. We're not going to give that away, but, uh, <laughs> but, but really uh, it, fun read. And so, um, but then, then interestingly, you move to a, a different kind of more controlled explosions when you got into drag racing. Right. And I mean, that's oh, what yes. makes a car go right. Or little yes, explosions. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and so I don't know. Just tell us what's your favorite story from your drag racing days? Well, you know, I got into it because, uh, as I said earlier, I loved to take things apart and put them back together. And so I also just have I like speed. I like fast cars, even when I was 13 years old and couldn't drive. Mm-hmm. Well, m- my close friend had a brother who was a few years older, he was driving, and he was racing cars. And he had a big garage where he would take his car, bring it in there, take the engine apart, put bigger pistons, change the carburation, this, that, and the other. And he allowed me to watch what he was doing and work with him. Hmm. And he told me after a couple of months, he said, Lou, you're pretty good at this. You know, why don't you be in charge of this? You put the camshaft in and Russ will do the pistons and and then we'll all go to the track together. And of course, he had to drive the car. I was 13 years old. I right, right. did not have a driver's license. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so I loved it and I got into that. And actually at the track, you were allowed to drive a car according to New York state rules a year earlier than... Mm-hmm you had to be to get a driver's license. Oh. So I was 15 years old at the time, and I started to race the cars we were building. And then when I reached 16 years old, my father bought me my own car. Yeah. Because we could drive at 16 in New York, but not in the major city. You had to be oh. 17 to drive in a lot of traffic. Right, but we right. were in a small town, so I was driving when I was 16. So, of course, the first thing I got... I did when I got the car was to rebuild the engine. <laughs> and my father said, you, you just bought the car. What are you doing? <laughs> I, well, I, I want to make it run better. Yeah. You know, when you buy the cars in the factory, dad, they don't make them very well. So, you know, I've been <laughs> a mechanic for several years now. I just want to make it work better. I said, it'll even get better gas mileage. He goes, oh, okay, oh. go. Oh, there it. you go. <laughs> and my mother had a, Mm-hmm. My mother did not trust me. So mm. to make a long story short, I, I I modified my car so that it was still legal to, to race that car in the track, you know, in its own class, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I, I won a lot of trophies. I set yeah. the track record for miles per hour. And uh, my mother was ready to throw me out of the house. She said, you're going to kill yourself. I said, Mom, we're drag racing. We're going in a straight line for a quarter of a mile. It's not dangerous. She says, yes, it's dangerous. Suppose your front wheel comes off. Then what are you going to do? (laughs) (laughs) My father said, just take it easy. Don't tell Mama every time you race the car. Right. (laughs) He was so impressed with all the trophies that I brought home that he, being a carpenter, built me a beautiful trophy case. To put my trophies in, and my mother would not go and take a look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was very successful. That, that was, um, I learned about competition. I learned about working with people. Mm. Uh, and I just, I, I got to love the smell of fuel and gasoline and burning rubber on the track. It's just something that excited me. I'm just, it never occurred to me to ask you this before, but have, have you gone to any drag racing or, or, or even 
you know, NASCAR races as an adult, or is it just no, kind of yeah. NASCAR races are like, like circle, yeah, circle yeah. races, right. which I was never interested in. Oh, gotcha. It was always acceleration yeah. from start to finish. However, right. I did go once uh, a long time ago to the to Indianapolis 500. So oh. I saw that and yeah. that was exciting to see all of those cars make all of that noise and the fumes in the air. That was fantastic. <laughs> and I did have an occasion to also go to a drag racing uh, event, the championship drag racing event in a town called Pomona in California. Some oh. people may be familiar with California and know where that Pomona is where you have a lot of drag racing championships. Oh. I did go and spend three days to, oh, to watch wow. that. And that was very exciting because when I was drag racing, the fastest modified cars, like the dragsters, mm -hmm. the very modified cars, they would go about 180, 190 miles an hour in the quarter mile mm -hmm. drag strip. Wow. That's and incredible. today they go 320. What? In three That's... seconds. Wow. And believe me, I wanted so badly to climb I... in one of those cars and I tried to do that. And of course, the management said, no, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> by, by management, do you mean your wife? or? <laughs> oh, well, that too. Oh, my God. I would have had to go without telling her. Sure. Right. <laughs> but it's a great sport. You know, it's just, uh, it was fun. And it's kind of, it's like chemistry. It's chemistry and physics. You know, uh, yeah, racing yeah. cars is not about getting in the car and driving it. I mean, if you're only a driver, maybe so, but I was a mechanic and a driver. So yeah. I would I would modify the car and modify the way I had to drive it. So it was both together and, you know, talk about motivation and passion and uh, desire for success. I mean, that was great. Mm. And, you know, I'm thinking, because around the same time that you were really getting into drag racing and actually able to drive yourself, you you also had a very fortuitous encounter at school when you were about 15. And you met a certain okay. scientist there. Oh, oh, okay. That had nothing to do with drag racing. No, yes. no, but it did have something to do with chemistry. Right, of course. No question about it. You know, as, as I've told you, I've always had this interest in chemistry since I was 10 years old. And by the time I was 13 or 14, I stopped fooling around making explosives. But I kept reading about chemistry. It was way ahead of my class. I mean, I knew about chemistry five years before it was ever taught in school. Hmm. And so in high school, in high school, uh, I, I remember our chemistry teacher, our teacher telling us that uh, we were going to have a very special person come to visit us. Um, a chemist who was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize actually just a year before uh, in chemistry. And uh, I think I was the only one in the class who was interested. So I asked, you know, <laughs> who it was? And he said it was Professor Linus Pauling. And I jumped because I was very familiar with his work when I was reading about gunpowder because <laughs> he was very interested in that kind of chemistry, not building bombs, but mm -hmm. learning how chemicals react with one another to form, you know, different molecules, especially those that have explosive uh, properties. And so uh, I, a couple of weeks later, I guess, um, Linus Pauling appears and I'll never forget him. He was a tall guy. He had bushy white hair. And he came to class and he was talking to us. And my teacher, of course, introduced him to the class. But since my teacher knew my passion for chemistry, he he kind of gave me, me a special introduction to mm. Linus Pauling. And uh, uh, Dr. Pauling stayed there about two days. <clears throat> to teach us some chemistry. And also he worked with us because we wanted to develop a chemistry laboratory, which we did not have at that time. And so he worked with us to explain the chemicals we need, what we need to do and so forth and so, uh, so on and so forth. And I worked quite closely with him, took a lot of notes 
And after he left, uh, several of us students and my teacher then went on for a couple of months to build our chemistry laboratory, which was which was great. I mean, this man, he had a, here's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. Even today, his chemistry is so complicated that a lot of it I don't understand. Wow. But yet he was able to lower himself to the level of a student's to teach us chemistry in a simplified way that, that we would never forget. He mm. was a magnificent teacher, mm. which I really respect in a scientist, because as I learned for 40 years after that, <laughs> most scientists can't teach their way out of a burning paper bag. <laughs> a burning paper bag, I like that. <laughs> Hi there, Robin here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality standout book with a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach? In case you're new to the author's corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world-class experts write world-changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers. And others have increased their business income by 600 times or more as a result of their book being out in the world and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top-notch expert who is ready to write your world-changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. We have a limited number of spots available and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, the link is www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Now, back to the show. And, you know, it's so interesting to me. One of the things that always was struck me as so extraordinary was how many Nobel laureates you met on your journey to becoming one yourself. Yes, isn't that something? Yeah. And how each one had a special contribution yeah. to your development. When I was contemplating whether or not I should write a memoir, I kept thinking back and thinking back and thinking back. And then I realized, oh, you know, I met this guy who helped me in the lab and then won a Nobel Prize. And then I sat back and I said, oh, wait a second. I met another guy who helped me in my lab, he also won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> anyway, I go through this recall uh, recollection, and there were seven of them. Mm. I It's amazing that this happened. I know of nobody else where this has happened. You see, I'm the kind of guy, when I do my research, I realize that I cannot be an expert in everything. Forget it. So if I needed advice or help with certain kinds of experiments, I didn't try to just do them myself or ask my people to try them out, see if they work. Why waste time? Right. Go to someone who's an expert in that. Go to the laboratory, ask them if they could help you. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard that? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you something. In science, a picture is worth a million words. <laughs> yeah. And so... <laughs> I would go and I would talk to somebody, oh, Professor, uh, you know, Axelrod, uh, could you could you please help me uh, with something? I, I want to use your method to, to do this, and I'm not quite sure how to do it. Uh, do you mind if I watch your people use that methodology so I could take it back to the lab? And he would go on, oh, my goodness, yes, here's some lab space. Do what you want to do. And we learned all these methods, which I took back and you successfully in my work. Mm -hmm. Two years after mm -hmm. I worked with him, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and this did happen over and over. and some Over of them, and over again. And they let you use their equipment. 
They let yes. you, they share yes. their labs with you. It's really. Scientists are great. Now, yeah. you, you cannot approach a scientist, let's say, who's working on a specific project. You can't go there and tell him you want to work on that project too. No. No, no, no. 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 The, the field is a little competitive, you know. Right, right. No, no. What, what I did was, sir, in doing this project, you use this particular method, whether it was chromatography, whether it was, you know, scintillation counting, whatever it was, you've used this method. You've, you're an expert in it. You've published this. And you've published this sir, because you want other people to use your method to do their work. I mean, why else would you publish it? So I said, well, I would like to, to use that method too. But here's the caveat, I said. Instead of just trying to reproduce it from your publications, do you mind if I come to your laboratory and learn it from your people? No one ever refused me. They would always say, my laboratory is your laboratory. You're welcome. Mm. I had trouble with one guy, but he was a character. I still got my way after a while. <laughs> <laughs> but this is how I learned all these methods. So yeah. uh, again, the point I want to make is I went through this six or seven times with different mm -hmm. people. And a few years after my encounter with these people who had great methods, they were awarded the Nobel Prize for their methods, for their work. Now, I did not know that at the time. I didn't want to go work with Julie Axelrod because I knew he was going to get a Nobel Prize and I wanted to get friendly with him. Right. You know, when you're a scientist, you don't think about Nobel Prizes. Nobody knows if you're going to get a prize. There's very few of us around. If you get one, okay, you're lucky, you did the right thing, you were the right place at the right time, but you don't think about Nobel Prizes when you're doing your work. All, right. all you're thinking about is you want to keep your tenure at the university. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to see if your idea is right. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Absolutely. And for me, most of my ideas were correct. So that was great. But I can I I owe a lot of thanks to all these experts who helped me. They didn't help me with the ideas. I, right. I you know mm -hmm. I mean uh, I can toot my own horn. You know, it was my ideas, my people's ideas. When I say my ideas, I mean the people in my lab, not just mm -hmm. me. And uh, it was our ideas, but using their expertise in order to be able to perform the experiments to test our hypotheses. Yeah. Science can be great. And I, I, you know, what I've just told you is perhaps the best part of science, the camaraderie and just the, it's just so beautiful when scientists can work together, you know, and when scientists work together, there's nothing they cannot do. You know, it's really great. Yeah. And that, you know, that makes me think um, a little farther down the road. I know I'm kind of leaping ahead a little bit here, but it makes me think a little farther down the road. And, uh, where you were, you were with your urologist scientist and, and friend, <laughs> and this, and this was after you made the discovery that our that our bodies produce this molecule yes, nitric yeah. oxide, which is a signaling mm -hmm. molecule that relaxes right. the arterial uh, endothelial layer of the arterial wall. And but you had a a friend who was into urology, and you guys yeah. came up with another discovery. Oh, yes, this was, uh, well, you know, this was the most popular discovery <laughs> of all. Of That's ever, sure. ever, <laughs> ever, ever. So, I mean, could, could I tell the story just very, very briefly? Oh, please. And, and I'm I'm not going, I know I'm don't, not talking. Don't give all the details because we want them to, to have to yeah, read the book yeah. to get I mean, all the I, details. But... Of course, and uh, I, I'm not going to talk deeply in science and you don't have right, to worry right. because number one, I am not a neurologist. Right. My expertise is <laughs> cardiovascular. I'm mm -hmm. not a neurologist, okay? Right. But yet I was speaking to a urologist. And I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't work much with nerves. Mm -hmm. So here's long story made short. I'm talking to um, my colleague, Jake, you know, at UCLA Urologist. And uh, he came down to me and he asked me if I knew 
what causes uh, erectile dysfunction. You know, there are like 300 million men in the world globally who suffer from this incredible disease. It's not life-threatening, but, you know, it's a pretty devastating disease to both them and their partners. And so he said, do you know what causes it? I said, Jake, you're the urologist. Why are you asking me? I, I don't know. He said, do you know what the neurotransmitter is? That is, do you know what chemical is released from the nerves that go to the erectile tissue to cause an erection? And I said, no, Jake, I have no idea. And he, uh, we talked about it and talked about it, and he kind of planted a seed uh, uh, in my head. And I Remember. just want to also point yeah, out, because yeah, at this time, the only real treatment oh. for erectile dysfunction was horrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were two kinds of treatment for erectile dysfunction. Oh, my goodness. One was uh, a, a an implant, a prosthesis, an implant where part of surgically, and that's what he did. He's a surgeon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He would remove part of the penis to put in a device that was either stiff or flexible uh, in order to make the penis stiff enough for to have sexual intercourse. And of course, most people did not want to go through that. And the other treatment, he had to teach his patients how to make an injection of certain chemicals into the penis <laughs> to, to make it erect. Yeah. Needless not, to say, they pleasant. ran out of the office. I right, mean, they right. did. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it was it was a rough time. I just want to give the right context. Okay, Good. So no, thank you. There were no drugs that you could simply take like a pill no. to treat erectile dysfunction. No. No. And so, the reason for that was that not enough physiology was known. Mm -hmm. We did not know what causes penile erection. If you don't know what causes penile erection, how the hell will you know what causes erectile dysfunction? So to make so a off you go to part, the library. You're <laughs> right. <laughs> if I go to the library, I do some reading. I do some reading about the nerves that that, that attach to the erectile tissue uh, to, to cause an erection, and uh, and 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 so in my reading the. The article said, we don't know what the neurotransmitter is, but we do know what kind of nerves are there. So I'm reading about these nerves and I, and I, I recognize something. These nerves were known for, uh, they were known for producing an effect, yet we didn't know what the neurotransmitter was. And so by looking at the kind of nerves they were, I sort of went, I sat back for a while and uh, wondering, well, what, what could the neurotransmitter be? And then I read another article. I read another article by a friend of mine in England who characterized those nerves, but in the brain. He found the same kind of nerves in the brain. Hmm. And he found that the neurotransmitter in the brain for those kinds of nerves was nitric oxide. Uh -huh. And he showed that the nitric oxide in the brain was important for memory, for information recall, uh, and so on and so forth. So this was a profound discovery that nitric oxide doesn't work just in the arteries, but it also works in the brain and has something to do with memory and information recall. But the point I want to make is that he showed nitric oxide was the neurotransmitter in those kinds of nerves. And then I said to myself and to my partner, Jake, I said, if the nerves, if those nerves in the brain have nitric oxide, what about the nerves in the erectile tissue? Isn't it possible they release nitric oxide? And that would make sense because nitric oxide is a vasodilator. What happens in an erection is that <clears throat> the tissue fills up with blood because the arteries dilate. That's, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so we did the necessary experiments and I'll jump ahead two years and we showed that nitric oxide was the neurotransmitter that causes penile erection. And furthermore, that those 
patients, those male patients with type 2 diabetes and other problems who have erectile dysfunction produce much less nitric oxide. Hmm. So I published my work and a few years, and I, what I didn't know at the time is that- <laughs> And the rest is history. The rest is history. Pharmaceutical, <laughs> a pharmaceutical company picked up on my research, which is good. That's what we, why we do research. Yeah. yeah. I cannot develop a drug. I have a small laboratory. You need <laughs> somebody who's got a billion dollars to get the drug to market. Right. And so a uh, six years after we published that, I read about this new orally administered drug that cures erectile in a little blue pill. There was a little, a blue, little pill. blue pill <laughs> named Viagra. So my work, I mean, Viagra is not my drug. I don't have a patent on it. I didn't develop it. Pfizer Pharmaceuticals developed it. Mm -hmm. But as they told me many times afterwards, had I not published my work on nitric oxide, we still wouldn't have a Viagra. And right. so I was given the, the, the acronym or nickname of the, the father of Viagra. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which I think everyone was okay with, except your mother, right? Oh, she my didn't... mother, my mother was so ticked off. She said, son, what are you going to do next? How are you going to embarrass me next? <laughs> he said, she says, good thing your father is not alive. He would be very upset. You know, and I said, oh, I think dad would be very happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And but then she was very proud because it wasn't long after that that you were awarded the Nobel Prize. Yes, you know it's interesting, uh, Robin. As you know, Viagra was announced as a drug in March of 1998. Hmm. Well, just a few months later, <laughs> the Nobel Prize for nitric oxide <laughs> was announced right. in October. October. And I'm thinking, can I tell that story? And I'm Please, thinking, yeah. okay, okay. So, hmm, <laughs> did I get the Nobel Prize be because of my work that led to Viagra? Or did I get the Nobel Prize because of my work on nitric oxide to lower the blood pressure and prevent stroke and heart attack? And I'm saying, you know, this is kind of a coincidence. Viagra goes <laughs> on the market. And a few months later, the Nobel Prize is announced. So I thought, well, let me look up the members, the committee <laughs> members of the Nobel Prize for Medicine. And I looked up the members and I see that the majority of them were men over the age of 60. Right. <laughs> Case closed. I Case thought closed. that was hilarious. Right. <laughs> but it's well, been a great ride, Robin. It's been a great it ride. It has. It has. And and you know, I'm I'm saving, I'm saving that I think what I well. It, this has been so wonderful, but there is one little more bit of, of news because the Nobel Committee, in, I mean, that selected you um, to win the Nobel. But since then, you have also been selected for something actually even more rare, uh, which is that the Nobel uh, Foundation um, is backing oh. a, a very big project that they yes. haven't they haven't done for many years uh, prior. Many so years. why don't you share with our listeners about that? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. When we, uh, when Robin and I, when, when, when we finished this book and we we published this book, uh, I had so many people calling me to tell me, oh, Lou, you got to make a movie out of this book. This would make an incredible, you know, movie, you know, life story and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I just got through with the book and I figured, nah, nobody's going to be interested in a, a scientist and his life story and blah, blah, blah. And then I remembered um, the movie A Beautiful Mind, mm. which was a movie I 10, 12 years ago, I don't remember. Russell Crowe mm -hmm. uh, was playing the role of John Nash. Mm -hmm. John Nash was a very famous economist. And if you saw the movie, it was a great movie. John Nash had uh, all kinds of, um, you know, psychological problems, uh, attention deficit disorder. He was, uh, 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 you know, all kinds of problems. And that showed up in the movie. Anyway, so I received a phone call from somebody in Germany telling me that 
do I have any plans to make a movie out of the book? I said, no. And they said, well, you know, we, we're interested in that. And I said, oh? So we had a long discussion. I met with him. Uh, a couple of people came in from Singapore uh, to talk to me. Uh, a couple of people came in from Hong Kong um, to talk to me about this. And we went back and forth talking. And so they're, as we speak, they're in the process of raising, uh, oh, I don't know, 50 or $60 million, which they yeah. need to raise in order to make this a, a go, you know, mm -hmm. for a movie. And I, I, I hope, I hope that this occurs. Uh, the people who are raising the funds think that it'll be uh, even a lot more exciting than, than, uh, uh, you know, a brilliant mind, which, um, yeah, yeah, right. Which, which I think did very well in the box office. So I just have to wait and see, and I hope yeah. that it's okay. And I asked him if, uh, if it is a go, will I play any kind of a role in picking out the celebrities? Who's going to star me? Who's going right. to star my wife and the other people? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, you, you can play a role. And in fact, I would be very involved. I would have to be uh, on the set quite a few times, at least in the beginning, mm -hmm. because, you know, when they make a movie, it's not just what's in a book. It's about other things. Well, yeah. Fill in, and they want to yeah. be sure that it's accurate and so Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And I said, Absolutely. you let me know when, and I'll book some plane tickets, and I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 and this is the first film that the Nobel Foundation has has backed since A Beautiful Mind. You know, it is they, they the Nobel Foundation. They are very reserved. Mm -hmm. They're reserved because they're Swedish. If you know Swedes, <laughs> you know the Swedes are very reserved, peaceful, and so on. Uh, well, they recognize the, the people who contribute, who donate to the Nobel Foundation. It was their suggestion that a movie be made, not, not just of me, but they right. felt that every few years, mm -hmm. a movie should be made about a famous Nobel laureate because that'll help to advertise the Nobel Prize right. and help to advertise the Nobel Foundation. Yeah, and to keep it relevant. Nobel, yeah. Nobel Prize is a pretty, I mean, when do you hear about them? When do you read about them? At least in the United States, you know, they announce them every year, take 30 seconds, then they go on to talk about basketball, football, and so right. on. <laughs> you don't know about the Nobel Prize. So by making movies every couple of years, I think that that uh, uh, will be very good for the mm -hmm for the Nobel Foundation. And so what they decided that the committee got together and decided that the next person they should do a movie about is me. So I'm not gonna argue. I, I think that's, right. <laughs> I'm flattered with that. I think it would make a great, great story. Yeah, and I think even from what our listeners have heard so far, I hope that our listeners will agree that, that we could definitely imagine some pretty fun scenes. Uh, <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> some very entertaining moments uh, right. in this right. in this uh, history of um, of this incredible life. <laughs> and, it, and it would demonstrate, you know, what does it take? Many people ask, how did you get the Nobel Prize? How did this start off? What kind of person were you? What were you when you were a kid? This movie would show how somebody who's eight or nine years old, how he develops and climbs the ladder despite the fact that his parents couldn't speak English, how he climbs the ladder to success, the Nobel Prize. I mean, I would think that should interest anybody. Doesn't yeah. have to be a scientist. I just want to see the scene when you blow up the dresser. Like that enough, <laughs> to, that's enough to get me in the theater. <laughs> I agree, yes. Yeah, I can't wait to go and see the premiere. I'll, I'll, you'll right. be there with me. I'm going to invite you to the premiere. You bet, you know, you know, as, as soon as we get the screen light, I'm going to buy my dress. I'm going to start shopping for my dress. Because really, okay. it takes a couple years to make a film. So maybe oh, it I does, should, it does. I want to have the most current, you know. Yeah, right. So, well, Lou, this, I cannot believe how fast our time has uh, flown by here, but wow. I have to, I Already. have to ask you my signature final question. I would not want to deny our listeners your okay. answer, whatever it will be. And so my final question is, what have I not asked you that you would love to answer? Well, I think you've asked me, you know, so many things. So one of, one of the things, uh, 
perhaps that you not asked is um, did did I have friends when I was in high school and in college who were pushing me, who were working with me, who mm -hmm. were also interested in chemistry and and physiology and so on? And did we did we sort of all work to, together to achieve a certain level? And what has happened with them? Uh, because I get asked that all the time. Huh. And, okay. and the point is, and the fact is that there were really none. Huh. My friends were not interested in chemistry. Huh. You know, they were interested in being a lawyer or going into business, you know, something mm. of that nature. But they, they just had no interest in, in chemistry. Some were interested in biology, but they were not as passionate and, and motivated as, as I was. So that I had to um, really do this uh, by myself, which I think was good for me because mm. I had to push mm. myself yeah. and I had to be sure that, you know, I never gave up and that, mm. uh, you know, I had to do all the thinking by myself. Most of it was thinking outside the box. And when you actually are by yourself doing this, uh, I, I think it's a good thing for you, mm -hmm. you, you know, because you're not really getting any help. So it's really up to you. Well, and you're not having anybody tell you that you can't either you know, right. or like setting yeah. limits. Although there were some times when people tell me <laughs> when I would apply for a research grant and it wouldn't get funded, oh, they said I yeah. shouldn't be doing this work or right. trying to publish a paper. And they said, you're crazy. Why are you working with nitric oxide? And they said, go do something else, you know, but I had to fight all that. And I was able to fight that successfully. Yeah. 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 I know, like, was it, why are you studying nitric oxide? It's a pollutant. That was, yeah. that was my favorite. I was studying the biology of nitric oxide. And I yeah. wrote a grant about that because we just showed that it was a vasodilator, lowered the blood pressure. And they said, nitric oxide is a toxic pollutant gas. Why don't you send your grants to the environmental agency and right. see if uh, they would fund your research? You know, we're not going to use taxpayers' money to fund uh, in, uh, studies on a toxic pollutant gas. Well, I could tell you that a few years later, they apologized. Yeah, I bet they did. You know, it <laughs> occurred to me one more question to ask you. I'm totally breaking my own rule. But because there is a question that I didn't ask you yet that I would like you to answer. Sure. And I think that it would be really great for our listeners to hear because because you did write this memoir, right? So, I mean, I know a lot of people, uh, especially non-writers, right, scientists uh, who or or celebrities who who write a memoir actually have a ghostwriter, but you actually did write your memoir. Yes. And yes, uh, yes. I can attest to that. Mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to share with our listeners, what, what would you say was the biggest learning that you had as a writer uh, writing a memoir, which is a completely different form than anything you'd ever written before? Yeah. Well, well, well of course, a lot of that help that I'm going to say came from you, but, but, but even before you suggested it, you know, I had been used to writing scientific articles, you know, mm -hmm. experiment one, we did this, this is why we did it. These were the methods, these were the data, and these are our conclusions. Well, you can't write a book, yeah. <laughs> a book like that. <clears throat> so I needed to convert my brain to writing a story mm -hmm. because this is a story yeah. from beginning to end. And stories have themes. Stories have people talking to one another, and why did you do this? And why did you do that? And you, you make it in, in, into a scene. And, and what I learned is that all of these scenes, all of the chapters have to flow together. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't just go write a book and one chapter is totally different than another, which is different from another. They have to somehow link together, flow together. And that's difficult because my mind for 50 years was not designed to write that way. So I had to change the way, uh, you know, I write. And so what's really funny is in the last year or so, I had to write a couple of, they asked me, the scientific journals, to write review articles. And I don't know if I ever told you this, Robin, but to write a review article. So I wrote the review article in a similar format not exactly the same as we were doing with, with Dr. No. Oh, boy. <laughs> and one of them, the British Journal of Pharmacology, loved it. Oh, said, really? Know, we have <laughs> never seen anybody write a review like this. But, but, but Professor Ignaro 
we're going to have to tone it down just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little too interesting. We, you know, we but have they to let make me it a keep little a lot more of things in there. So that was wow. great. So you're revolutionizing, revolution. Revolutionizing? Yeah, revolutionizing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm like, I'm like yeah, no, all right. of a sudden, I'm like, did I say that? But, the but right this way? was a review article. You could never do that even with a in a, science, in a research a pure paper, scientific right. research paper. Can you, you know, just just for fun, we should write a spoof scientific research paper that's actually interesting. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> just, it has like it stories and dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, in, in in that article that I wrote. <laughs> I ended it by saying, as you can see, nitric, because nitric oxide is a gas. Remember that? Yeah. So yeah. at the end, I said, as you can see, nitric oxide is not, not just a gas blowing in the wind. Oh, good. Oh, was, wow. One of, uh, what's his name's uh, uh, famous, famous Bob, song? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yes, Bob yes, Dylan. Yes. And so the editor caught that and said, oh, I love it. We're going to keep it there. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. So that was great. Now you're revolutionizing. Uh, science articles but besides just science that's <laughs> i i i love that i love that you're bringing that that entertainment value to a whole new genre so that is uh that's another wonderful contribution uh, uh from dr lewis signaro and uh i want to thank you so much for being with us and contributing so much uh, entertainment to the author's corner thank you so much robin for inviting me and i'll tell you this is the I just had so much fun uh, during this one hour. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.